This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Catherine Klein. And we are here on Sirius XM 132. We're live every Thursday morning. We are replayed throughout the week. And you can always find us on demand on the Sirius XM app. Hello, Catherine. <laughs> Good morning, Nick. I am so glad that you are here and energetic and ready to go. You know what? It's that triple shot latte that I had <laughs> as I walked to work this morning. That is good. Yes. That is good. Our first guest who will join us in just a moment will be Justin George of the Marshall Project, and we'll be discussing the proposed criminal justice reform bill, the First Step Act, which is in the news. You may have heard about it. Um, seems like it will be taken up in the Congress again here shortly. So that is going to be an exciting and topical conversation. So, without further ado, because we have a lot to discuss, let's welcome Justin George to the show. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Justin, you actually have a pretty interesting background before joining the Marshall Project. So, let's start with you and tell us a little bit about your professional history and journey to where you are now. Sure. Well, um, I went to the University of Colorado and I've worked at several newspapers. I worked in Boulder, Colorado, in Newport News, Virginia. Uh, in Florida, all around. Uh, and then I worked uh, last at the Baltimore Sun, where I was the uh, cops and crime reporter there for about five years. Um, I took one year off to go to the University of Marquette, where I did a fellowship, where I did a, uh, a year-long project on gun violence. Mm. And then after that, uh, since about March 2017, I've been hired by uh, the Marshall Project, where I work here in Washington, and I cover uh, a lot of sort of federal affairs that have to do with uh, criminal justice, so uh, crime politics policy, as well as just covering sort of the uh, different uh, agencies that are here that affect criminal justice, like the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, which is the federal prison system, and then parts of the Department of Justice that deal with criminal justice. And so, Justin, you know, when I was reviewing your background and the types of stories that you've covered, you've really broken some very interesting stories at the intersection of, of, I guess, criminal justice. You know, what our show is about business and social impact. So, you know, what what is the social justice angle of, of your work? And I think your work at the Baltimore Sun is something that our, our listeners would also recognize. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, Baltimore is a uh, city that is always in the news, and it, it has a lot of issues, obviously, has a lot of uh, racial issues, it has a lot of uh, economic issues, class issues. So there are a lot of things sort of swirling there. And then in the midst of that, you have, um, you know, very, very bad violence that's going on in crime. So at the time that I was there was during the uh, incident where Freddie Gray was arrested and killed uh, while he was uh, being transported by police. Uh, that was a obviously pivotal moment in the city's history. It exposed a lot of sort of the issues that are going on across the country, whether it be at Ferguson or New York, about uh, community uh, relations with police, uh, police use of force, um, how police uh, deal with the community, um, and sort of issues that swirled there. So that was sort of, uh, you know, one of the things I was uh, during the Freddie Gray 
um, case and then during the subsequent riots that followed, I was uh, able to sort of uh, be embedded in the police department of all places, but um, was able to come out with a very unlikely story that I've seen um, before. And that is I got to follow the police investigation into Freddie Gray uh, death to see exactly, you know, how um, thoroughly they looked at that case. And and I know that we've talked about that on the show, so we don't have to go in a lot of detail. Um, so I just wanted to remind our listeners sort of what that background was and where where you were in that. Yeah, though I'm though I'm interested uh, in the you know the, the angle that you covered in the the police investigation. So tell us about that because I do think that's you know that's not an angle that we necessarily hear that often. And there are obviously, I, you know, I, my sense is that there is concern. That you know, police investigations often lead to showing you know or, uh, that the police acted appropriately, judiciously. So, sure. so there could be concerns that this is this really a deep investigation? Is there a real you know how much how much are police uh, departments learning from these incidents? How much are they holding people accountable? What did you find out in that process? Well, you know, I, that's a good thing. I only know what I saw, and um, you know, it was very you know obviously an unusual arrangement what had happened before was that uh police had uh and i had talked about possibly embedding in one of the units maybe the homicide unit or something else to write a story that looked at sort of what the detectives were doing now what ended up happening was obviously uh baltimore got uh, thrust into controversy um and quickly the police uh department was embattled from the start uh, the public did not believe anything that it was doing, whether it uh, investigated Freddie Gray's death. Um, after that fact, they had lost a lot of faith. So uh, one of the ideas was that if I was actually uh, there to sort of be an independent um, kind of analyst and to watch exactly what the police department was doing uh, and then to report it without, you know, any sort of um, inhibition or censorship mm-hmm. or whatever, maybe that would lead to greater public trust. And so that's what I did. Um, and it, yeah, it was a very unusual thing. And I, what I just saw was, you know, I did see uh, a police uh, department that worked very hard. And I think the public doesn't know to what extent they went to try to solve that. Um, and of course, you had uh, mixed feelings in there because you had officers who obviously knew some of the uh, officers who had been arrested, uh, they did not feel, uh, some did not feel necessarily that uh, that was deserved. They felt that, uh, you know, a lot of feelings came out in my story where uh, they felt that, um, you know, uh, that that they're there for the same reason a lot of the public is. A lot of these are Baltimore natives who have a lot of pride in the community, and they were also um, similarly, like sort of wondering, uh, you know, that there was a divide between the community and how the community sees the police, but there's also a divide between how the police see the community. And that was also expressed. Now, whether that sort of, you know, uh, gave off anything that came to solve a lot of the problems that are going on, no, I don't think so. As you can see, these issues are still going on, and, and I think they will until there is um, an ability to sort of bridge that um, divide that's going on. I think some things are going to are helping, and that's transparency. Uh, when you have body cameras and issues like that, um, that could be pointing in the right direction. And Justin, you know, one of the things that you're you're highlighting is this divide, this us versus them. I think that opens up the question as to how did we get here. Um, really the topics of what's the pain point Catherine mentioned at the top of the show, mass incarceration. Like, what is that? What are you finding? 
what is you can just help provide the context to our listeners as to what we are talking about here sure it's absolutely i mean the people who have been uh the most affected are certainly uh you know young african-american men uh who have been incarcerated uh at a greater sort of um uh certainly at a higher rate um and a greater disparity than other populations um that has to do with you know going back to the war on drugs um going back to a lot of different issues that have popped up um including a lot of the economic issues that are going on you know obviously that uh put people in different you know desperate realms um and some of the things that are that have been happening so you know these these issues have started a long time ago as far as when this divide started you know i've talked to different you know police chiefs and and associations and, and public and and everybody and they would say you know i mean it, it started a long time ago and it, it is a sort of uh divide that may have begun even with you know with the advent of the police car when you don't have these officers who are walking the block anymore and knowing who their uh sort of constituents are uh and you have a uh a force that responds and response became the most important thing and, and nobody can say that that's not a worthwhile thing but i think uh you know things sort of shifted and then you uh got into sort of a uh, mentality as time went on where you sort of had a uh, kind of a warrior force, maybe a uh, force that, uh, you know, police force that, you know, rode, you know, sort of Humvees, different things like that, and created this perception and an image that probably did not um, go well with the community. So they're, they're, it's a complex issue. I'm not saying sure. it's easy. Um, law enforcement, at the same time, you are dealing with mass shootings, you're dealing with uh, unbelievable increases in firepower, in weaponry that's out there. So you cannot say that uh, officers should not have uh, adequate protection. Uh, and they're dealing with a lot of different uh, things that we didn't deal with years ago. So it's a very complex thing. Um, you know, how you bridge that divide. I mean, that's that's a question for our entire country. And it obviously um, transcends more than just criminal justice, uh, as we're seeing, obviously, in our political, um, the political battlefield that we have right now. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Justin George, a staff writer at the Marshall Project. We're, we're going to be talking about the First Step Act and, and criminal justice and prison reform. But, Catherine, I had a quick question for you to help us also set mm-hmm. the context. So you mentioned mass incarceration. Right. We are going to be talking about prison reform. From your understanding as you teach in this area, what is mass incarceration? What are some of the issues that you are uncovering? Uh, sure. Uh, and, and, and Justin, it's, uh, correct me if I have some of these statistics wrong because you know, it's been a while since I've uh, focused exactly on this topic. But in the, you know, in the 1970s, sort of building up in the 19s, late 1960s and in the 1970s, our policies uh, as a government shifted to – and there was a thought of we will just – you know, fundamentally – we will be tougher on crime. And there was a belief that there was a, you know, a serious crime wave um, and that the, the answer was being tough on crime. I mean, I think some of these, I suppose it's the, the, the statement that there was a belief is incorrect. There, there had been an increase in crime. And, and the response of the government um, was to uh, you know, crack down on crime. And what that actually meant uh, in many cases was lengthening prison sentences. So we have a much larger percentage of the population incarcerated uh, today than we did, uh, you know, in the 1970s. Uh, 
I'm forgetting the statistics, but I think the answer is that, like, isn't it? Isn't the statistic that one out of uh, that that the U.S. incarcerates um, of, of all incarcerated people in the world, um, I believe it's twenty percent of them. One fifth of them are incarcerated in the United States, but our population represents one twenty fifth of the world's population. I think that's it. Justin. Does that sound right? Well, I, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure myself. I mean, <laughs> Some of us are obviously, uh, you know, one of the. So we are, but you know, right? We we incarcerate a remarkable percentage of of uh, of our, our citizens, and again through these these laws, and the, this has particularly been felt by the African American community, where the crackdown has been uh, tougher, where people are more likely to get prison sentences. You know, yeah, color seems to factor into the length of prison sentences and so on, and there's a real. You know, I think, and we can dig into all of this, but I think, uh, and I'm thinking about the guests who've come into my class as we've spoken about uh, incarceration, recidivism, and one of the really poignant and telling comments was, we don't really know why we incarcerate people in, the, in this country. Is it to keep criminals, you know, off the streets and we need this for safety? Is it to punish people and to, you know, deter crime? Is it to rehabilitate people? You know, and we're we're very confused about what we're doing uh, in prisons. But maybe this is a good segue to uh, to talk about, um, you know, the law, the first step to act, and not yet a law, but that is under consideration. Um, Just maybe you can tell our listeners, um, you know, what is what if this bill is passed, if it's signed by the president, um, what will change, and what's the impetus now? For um, you know, for, for this act, it's a rare for reform. Act for reform, and um, you know, it, it's we're not seeing a lot of places where Democrats and Republicans are coming together to pass legislation. Um, so it'd be interesting to, again to understand the con- the the context and the um, the impetus for this law. Well, I think you're you're hitting on exactly a lot of the discussion <laughs> that's swirling around this bill. You're hitting on the discussion that was going on in the Trump administration itself between the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions and uh, Trump's senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who believes in reform, is how do we uh, essentially make our community safer? Uh, Is it through essentially incarcerating people and locking them away? Or is it through rehabilitation, restoration, and trying to give them opportunities? Uh, And so you're seeing that push and pull, and that's what's taking place right now in Congress as they debate this broad bill. This is considered, uh, while it is a very modest bill and does not do a whole lot, you also have to factor in that the federal prison system pales in comparison to the state prison systems um, across the United States. It is a very symbolic thing. And um, it's, it's more than that. It's going to affect a lot of people. And then what this broad bill is going to do has several different sort of reforms in it. Um, among them is, uh, you know, that's going to lower the disparity between cocaine and crack. Uh, sort of this, uh, you know, years ago, crack was decided to be this, you know, highly dangerous thing. And it was given, uh, you know, when it came to crimes that involved it, it was given a far harsher punishment. And the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 sort of lowered that. It certainly did not equal it. But what it didn't do was it didn't affect anybody who had been sentenced before then. Uh, what the uh, uh, the First Step Act will do is make that retroactive, and that could affect as many as 2,600 people 
um, federal prisoners who have been convicted before then who might be eligible for release. Um, and it also curbs a lot of these mandatory minimums that were also instituted in the uh, 1990s. Um, some of those, uh, you know, essentially locked people away for uh, drug crimes. You have the, you know, everybody does the three strikes, um, you're out, the three strikes, the life sort of sentence. That would shrink um, to uh, if you had three uh, three crimes, um, weighty drug charges that would shrink quite a bit to 25 years. That would be the maximum. Another, uh, you know, another mandatory minimum would shrink again by um, you would essentially go to 15 from 15 years to five years. Um, so that's another thing it would do. And in the meantime, it would expand what they call the safety valve. That's sort of the lingo of they call it. And what it is is it essentially if you have a um, a criminal record uh, that is, um, you know, below a certain threshold. <laughs> oh, we'll let you, we'll let you, we can let you clear your throat for a, for a moment, and I'll, I'll take this moment. I mean, I'm curious to understand, as you describe this, whether the focus is on um, federal prisoners or, or state prisoners, because as you said, there are far fewer folks in federal prison, um, and it would, if you can clarify for our listeners, the you know the distinction that you know that's interesting and would be uh, helpful. Sure. Yeah. Again, uh, you know, these this only affects uh, people who are tried of federal crime. So I would say you know the majority, obviously, the, the vast majority of crimes are tried in state courts, um, and these these are you know federal charges that apply. You know, in, in many cases, a lot of these are, you know, there's quite a bit of white-collar criminals right. uh, <clears throat> that are in federal court. And so, you know, the First Step Act even goes further by saying, you know, if you are a low-risk inmate, uh, it requires the Bureau of Prisons to possibly send you to uh, what is known as home confinement, uh, which is a form of house arrest. Uh, basically, you would be monitored with an ankle bracelet, maybe asked to check in, um, and and that would open up halfway houses, which would, uh, which are a place where certainly older inmates who are getting out and need more transitional help. Perhaps they've been locked away for decades and don't know how to use a cell phone, um, don't know, know a lot of the technology that's going on. Maybe they've lost touch with family, so they don't have a root system to sort of kind of, uh, you know, get back to. That opens up space in halfway houses for them. These people are going to be released anyway, so you want to try to give them the best transition uh, possible. That's the idea. Um, and so, so, Justin, that actually – so that brings up an interesting question for me in the bill. Um, when it comes to that new – potentially opening up opportunities for halfway houses and, and that type of service, is there money involved? You know, like we – someone has to pay for that service too. So, you know, is is Congress going to allocate funding as well to to be able to serve those halfway houses? Yeah, that that's definitely something that Congress will have to deal with. You know, in the bill itself, there are hundreds of millions of dollars that is going to be devoted towards rehabilitation programs, towards education training, towards um, you know, treatment, mental health treatment, things like that. But absolutely, um, the halfway houses at least on the federal side, are run exclusively by private providers. Um, and lately that has become um, a business. You are seeing um, some private corporations that uh, many people might know from the private prison industry who have jumped into 
providing halfway houses for the federal system. So uh, you have groups like GEO, uh, that's a big one, um, and then other groups that you know, you've know you certainly heard of um, who are now essentially uh, want to get into the re- what they call the reentry business, and that is providing this sort of transitional monitoring uh, that takes place and then contracting with the federal government on that. So, and Justin, you know, as you, um, I mean, you have a, you have been a reporter um, writing for you know, a number of newspapers, but now you're at the Marshall Project. Uh, does the Marshall Project have, you know, a position on this, uh, this, this law or this proposed law? Um, you know, that's not just yes, we're going to cover the news, but we're, uh, you know, we're we're an advocacy group as well. No, you know, and then that's what we try to make clear, you know, every day. We are not an advocacy group. Now, what we do is we have our niche, and our niche is covering criminal justice. But, you know, as far as, you know, who we are and what we are, we are certainly uh, sort of a new way of doing journalism. We are a startup. We are a nonprofit. Um, but we are not, uh, you know, altogether all that different from your local public radio station or, uh, you know, an NPR. Uh, there's ProPublica has been out there for years. Um, you know, we have the same standards and the same ethics as um, sort of the, a lot of the legacy mainstream um, newspapers that are out there. Uh, we try to keep, you know, as, as objective as we can um, and be non-biased. Uh, you know, I certainly, I, when it comes to my contacts and my sources, uh, they are, you know, on the right and on the left. And actually, uh, these days, with the First Step Act and with who's leading right now in Congress, you know, most of my sources are actually very, you know, conservative and on the right. Um, but yeah, we are, uh, you know, otherwise we should, we, we, we look no different from any others. Um, you know, our editor is Bill Keller, who ran the New York Times um, for many years. So, you know, we, we take ethics and we take objectivity and everything very seriously. What we hope to do is uh, investigate and to spotlight issues um, for people to see. Interesting. And, I want, you know, when I want to ask you about one anecdote, you know, this, uh, it's, it's a, it can be dangerous to focus on these anecdotes that are, you know, stories that are uh, become very sticky and salient. Um, so with that, with that um, caveat, um, you know, one of the things I've heard about the Trump administration and interest in this uh, law is that this comes a lot from uh, personal passion from Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. And and some of his interests in, uh, or a lot of his interests, strives from his fa- person, his family's personal uh, history of incarceration. Jared Kushner's father was incarcerated. Uh, Kushner saw how uh, you know disruptive and upsetting this was for the family, and that has been a drive towards let's let's change the laws, um, let's be a little more humane, perhaps especially around white collar crime. Any truth to that anecdote? Absolutely. I wouldn't just say white-collar crime. I would say to uh, prisoners in general, and mm-hmm. it's absolutely true. I think you just saw Cory Booker actually uh, laud Jared um, just yesterday and talk about how if it wasn't for Jared Kushner, this bill would not have gone over the finish line. I think that, uh, you know, through the months that we've seen, I've talked to, you know, various people, and people, have, you can just look at the comments that his um, his willingness to participate in this and his uh, passion for this is sincere. Um, I do know that, you know, his father's uh, uh, imprisonment uh, in a prison camp certainly did affect him. I mean, to the point, uh, I guess people have told me that he carries around a wallet that his father made in prison camp. And what what, what affected him the most, um, apparently, was, you know, not so much um, 
<clears throat> essentially, you know, that people shouldn't be in prison, but was going to this camp and seeing a lot of prisoners who were just sort of lying aimlessly about. And then his father telling him that these people had so much potential. Uh, many of them were very bright people, uh, were professionals who, you know, had a lot of work and that they shouldn't be wasting away here in this prison system, that they should be uh, at least finding, you know, good use for them and then feeling like they are making a difference and um, getting back on their feet. Right. It's, yeah, really, really interesting. And I think it's an important point that you make, certainly something that we heard a lot um, as I've investigated this topic is that, you know, there is indeed so much, you know, so much waste of, of potential talent. Uh, in prisons that we you know that we have gone over the last decades to educating people much less in prison you know cutbacks on books cutbacks on teaching programs cutbacks on Pell grants and so there's a lot of you know there's a you have you have a lot of people who are um, low income troubled backgrounds family trauma in prison, in jails, you know, with very, very little to do to pass the time other than watching really terrible television. Um, and um, so it's, inter- it's interesting that, you know, to, for you to, to say, to, to make this connection and I think to drive home in an interesting way. Um, obviously, many Americans have uh, loved ones who are uh, incarcerated, but there are probably plenty of uh, Americans who've never, you know, who haven't gone into a jail, who haven't gone into a prison and, you know, for whom this is really other, you know, other dangerous stereotyped and so on. So it's very interesting to have somebody in the White House who has a a different experience and, as you say, seems to be advocating strongly and effectively for prison reform. And Justin, um, I think in the last couple of minutes that we have with you, there, there's clearly a lot of talk in the news around, um, you know, journalism and reporting broadly. And as you have been fortunate, it seems to have some, you know, high level access on the Hill or maybe even the White House. You know, how how are you seeing actually the reception to journalists, um, maybe when you're not necessarily covering the White House and the day to day politics of things? Yeah, I'm locked into Washington, and I, I got to say that you know nobody has uh, you know called me fake news um, to my face or anything. But you know, certainly you know you're seeing a lot of the reports. Uh, this has been a very you know tough time um, for journalism. Time just named. Um, journalists, including, you know, journalists who've been killed, uh, including, you know, at my former company at the Capitol News Gazette, um, Journalists of the Year for the sacrifices, uh, you know, that they have made literally for, um, you know, our democracy and by trying to put, um, you know, information out there for people to be able to run the country, to be able to decide things every day. Um, it's not been an easy time, um, obviously, for all of us. I think, uh, you know, we feel... Um, a lot of the pressure, but at the same time, I think you are seeing uh, a commitment from journalists to, um, you know, obviously to stay the course um, and to continue to do our job. And that's what we need to keep doing is just to focus on that. Um, You know, the information and facts will um, come out and the public can decide. And that's what we're hoping in the end that facts, you know, matter and facts will win. I think as an academic institution, we hope that too, yes. that facts win the day. Uh, but thank you so much for your reporting and for, for coming on our show and sharing your insights on the First Step Act. We look forward to seeing the progress and, and hope, and we hope, I think, that it gets passed. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.